Our uh, teaching this morning is going to be part sermon, uh, part cultural critique, part exhortation, part encouragement. Um, It's going to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And we're going to start with a group activity. So, Steph, could you join us up front? And I have a question to start our time, and I want you to interact with this. Maybe uh, raise your hand, though, so so we're not uh, overwhelmed and I'll call on you. But I want you, you can take a moment to think about this, and then we'll share some of our thoughts. I want you to answer the question. It's just a tiny little question uh, with small repercussions. All right. What's wrong with the world? All right, so think about it for a sec. What's wrong with the world? And then you can offer our body your two cents in edification. All right, go ahead. <laughs> Men and women, all right. Yeah, Dave. The world needs Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah, Jeff. Greed. Yes. We're going too fast. Moving too fast. Slow down. Going too fast. Yes. Self, selfishness, yeah. unforgiveness. How you doing, Steph? All right, Scott. Yeah, no respect for human life. There was a couple over here that were waiting. Yeah, Friday. Sin. Yeah, Miriam. Oh. You're waving. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Roxy. Yeah, we've lost, lost God. Yeah, Paul. Ego, pride. Yeah, Damien. Denial of truth. Now, I need it now. Yeah, it goes with the moving too fast. Lack of patience, yeah. Racism, yeah, racism, yeah, Carrie. Lack of self-awareness, yeah, absolutely. Mike, idolatry, yeah. Yeah, so coveting, yeah, covetous, yeah, Diane. Evil, yeah. Yeah, evil. Yes, Harry. Electronics. Electronics. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I've got four kids. Yes. Yeah, social media, certainly. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, lack of self-control. We'll take one more. Anybody else? Make sure everybody gets there. Yeah, Jeff. Lust, yeah, yeah. All right, can we all thank Steph? Nice job, Steph, for our word cloud. Obviously, um, there's all sorts of problems in our world, all sorts of social injustices, lack of care for human life, racism, lust, sins, evil. Um, there's all sorts of ways that we can answer this, uh, this problem. We're going to actually jump now to the scripture. 
And then at the end of the sermon, we'll revisit some of our answers and uh, and this question. So if you want to follow along on the screen, we'll be in Acts chapter 13, or you can follow along in your own Bibles. We're continuing our journey through Acts, and we are now in Paul's first missionary journey. And last week, uh, at the beginning of chapter 13... Paul and Barnabas and John Mark went from Antioch into Cyprus and they traveled across the island of Cyprus and they had the showdown with the Jewish false prophet Bar-Jesus here in Paphos on the western part of Cyprus. And then at the end uh, of the chapter where we're going today, they travel up into Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, um, in uh, the region of Galatia. To, to the area where Paul wrote the later epistle of Galatians. And we're going to be in Antioch, but this is a different Antioch than this Antioch. Same name, different church. So already we've heard about this Antioch at several places in Acts. Um, this is the first time we're hearing about this Antioch there. And this Antioch in Asia Minor, up in modern-day Turkey, was a Roman colony. It was an ancient city that, that uh, Rome had colonized, and Rome had a problem, which a lot of empires have, and their uh, main city, Rome, was way overcrowded. And so all of these soldiers that they had in their military, one of the perks of being uh, a soldier is that you could earn official Roman citizenship. And if you earned official Roman citizenship, then you could uh, live in Rome, but Rome was overcrowded. And so what they did to help uh, take care of this problem was they started colonies where uh, their citizens could have their Roman citizenship in these other cities. And this uh, city of Antioch here is one of those cities that uh, one of the Caesars had started to put soldiers in that they had nowhere to put them. And so that uh, gives a little bit of cultural context to the passage today, which is Acts 13 verses 13 to 52 from the ESV. Luke writes, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So John Mark got homesick. He was their companion and their assistant on the journey, and he returned home to Jerusalem. And Barnabas and Paul are going to think very differently about this. And they're going to have an argument about it later that's ultimately going to lead to them splitting up. So this is a significant thing that happens. It's no small thing, and it's why Luke includes it here. So John Mark leaves and and goes back to Jerusalem. Verse 14, but they, that's Paul and Barnabas, went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Poseidon. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets and the rulers the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said. So this is Saturday. It's the Sabbath day. And this is what Paul's pattern of of mission ministry will be. He first goes to the Jewish synagogue in every city he goes to. And then to the Gentiles afterwards. So he He and Barnabas go to the synagogue and they sit down and they listen to the normal uh, scriptures that are read. They're part of the liturgy that day. And then at the end, uh, because they're guests, they're welcome uh, to share. So, um, Scott, would you like to give the sermon this morning as our guest? (laughs) So, but Paul and Barnabas, they're strangers, they're they're visitors, and they are invited uh, to share that morning. So Paul stands up. 
and motions with his hand. So he's an expressive teacher. He says, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So he's, we've already seen this in Acts. This is a style of teaching that's very Jewish where, where you go through in sweeping terms. You cover uh, the history of Israel. So Paul um, is doing this. Stephen did this earlier. We read about that in chapter 7. So Paul is going through the highlights uh, of the history of Israel. But it's important to notice which ones he's highlighting. And this is the important part where he gets to right here. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, that's Saul, the first king of Israel, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. So now he's going to skip all the way from David to Jesus. He highlights the time, in, uh, the time in Egypt. He highlights the Exodus. He highlights uh, the first king, Saul, and then he transitions to David. So what, what Saul is doing, what Paul is doing, is bringing before these Jewish brothers and sisters the idea of God building a kingdom on earth. And he goes from David to David's promised heir, the one who would sit on David's throne and reign eternally. And he says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. Verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, One is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who have, who have come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he served the purposes of God, so Saul is gonna, Paul is going to go back to David and tie in the ministry of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus to the kingship of David. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. In other words, when David was, pro- was writing the Psalms about not seeing corruption, he was prophesying about Jesus. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, so exactly a week later, the next Saturday, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. How cool is that? Throughout the week, there were whispers and they were talking to their neighbors and sharing about this message. And the entire city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Man, there's nothing that will kill ministry like jealousy. There's nothing that will destroy a family like jealousy. And so the Jewish leaders, they see this huge crowd gathering to hear the good news, the gospel, and they're filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. So they pull out their scriptures and they try to find counterpoints and they begin to argue with him, even as he's trying to teach. It's hard to teach when someone's arguing with you. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city 
stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, um, God, this morning as we engage this passage, that was a, a big chunk of verses. But there are just nuggets of just truth and beauty planted throughout that. And I believe that, that this word is alive and active for Parker Ford Church today. God, what you want to teach us about Jesus, what you desire to teach us about mission, what you desire to teach us about evangelism, about the culture that we live in, and how to engage people with the gospel. We pray that we would learn those things today, that we would uh, grow like we prayed for our children, God, in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. We bless your word, God. We invite your word to just go out in this community. May your word be carried out by us into this community, God. And so we ask that you would apply it to us throughout the remainder of our morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to switch gears now from the scripture now to cultural critique, okay? You ready? Can you, can you uh, jump with me uh, to that? All right, at the be- very beginning of this sermon series, and this is going back a number of months ago, we had three weeks of introduction uh, 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 coming into Acts. And in one of those weeks, I covered this idea and you might remember it, but these three postures, the I think, therefore I am, I feel, therefore I am, and he speaks, therefore I am. And so just a quick recap of this. Modernism, and particularly uh, the age of rationalism leading up to the, the First and Second World War, culture, especially Western culture, was characterized by this posture um, that, uh, from this quote, by Rene Descartes where he said, I think, therefore I am. And uh, there was this rationalism in modernity and, and writers had this utopian vision of the future. So there was this belief that technology would carry society into a utopian uh, version of the future. Now, one of the evils or one of the problems with the world that was mentioned this morning was what? Technology. Technology hasn't saved the world. It's made the world vastly more complicated. Particularly because now we can destroy the world in ways that earlier humans could not have fathomed. And so this caused, this ability to destroy the world, particularly nuclear weapons, it caused uh, this rift in this thinking which ushered in uh, postmodernism, and and that really began as a result of World War One and World War Two. In the 20th century, more people died in wars than any other century. I believe the statistic is combined that we know of in World War One and World War Two. So many people died. This promise of a utopian future crumbled, and everyone looked around them at the chaos and the death and the carnage, and that ushered in the philosophy of postmodernism, which we are still living in today. And um, in our culture, 
This has trickled down from academics and has infiltrated the way we live our daily lives. And so these are the popular phrases that characterize life in the 21st century in America. Phrases like, it's my life. I get to choose what's good and what's wrong. I get to choose how to live my life. You can't tell me how to live. Don't judge me. Anybody ever heard that phrase, don't judge me? Don't judge me. Everyone deserves to be happy. Have you heard that one? This is our culture, right? Everybody deserves to be happy. You should do whatever you want to do. And we'll even make it religious. God wants you to be happy. Do whatever it is you want to do. Another big one is don't conform. Don't be like anybody else. Don't you dare be like anybody else. Be yourself. What does that mean? There's 7 billion of us. We're going to be like each other. Right? I look like my dad. That's fine. That's how God made me. Live and let live. This is, this is connected to the don't, don't judge. Live and let live. Let them do their thing. You do your thing. This is all based in this shift that has moved out of rationalism and into a very emotion-based culture. And some of that is good because God made us to be people with emotions. God made us to be people that feel things and, and, and feel love and compassion. So I'm not just writing it all off as bad because it's not. There's some good goodness in this, but we were not designed by God to live this way. I feel, therefore I am. Neither are we supposed to live, I think, therefore I am. What the scriptures teach, and I believe teach clearly, is we live because God speaks. He speaks, therefore I am. Think about the very first statement in the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he create them? He spoke them. And John, the, in the Gospel of John, he begins his Gospel looking back at Genesis 1 and playing on it. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. And he says, everything that's come into being, you and I, the created earth, everything, every spirit, every person, every life has come into being because God spoke. Jesus' nickname, one of his, he has a number of nicknames, and they're all beautiful, but one of his main nicknames is the Logos, the Word of God. He is God's Word. And we believe as followers of Christ and followers of God, how do we hear God? How do we know his will? How do we walk with him? Through his Word. By steadying his Word, by storing it up in our hearts. Like the psalmist said, I've steadied your word and stored it up in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is very countercultural. To, to live a life characterized by this, that my life is not based on my thinking and my life is not based on my feeling. My life is based on God speaking. And the reason why we started this whole series with this, with this idea, this teaching, is because the whole point of going into Acts was, let's look at how the church listened to God, discerned his will, and then walked it out in their day-to-day lives. Because we want to do the same thing, amen? We want to listen to God, we want to discern his will, and then we want to walk it out in our day-to-day lives, right? It's what we want to do. And so our posture as, a, as the people of God is to be, he speaks, Therefore I am. All my being, all my meaning comes from the fact that God has spoken. 
All right, there was this survey. Anybody know what Barna is? Are you familiar with Barna? Barna is a major Christian uh, research group. They take, uh, they do really good research in the church, trends that are happening in the church and in culture, how it affects Christianity. They, they just did a recent study, and this is astonishing to me and very uh, concerning, to say the least. In their recent study, they, they asked all the different generations that are alive right now their opinions about evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the good news about Jesus. And this is what they found. Almost half of millennials, so this is my, my generation. I'm on the older end of it, but it's my generation. Almost half of millennials, 47%, and these are Christian millennials. These are millennials that attend church more than once a month. So these are committed, believing, millennial Christians in America. Almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. This is compared to a little over one quarter of Gen X. So there's still a good portion of Gen X uh, Christians who believe that it's wrong to, to evangelize. And one in five baby boomers and the same amount for elders. And Gen Z, raise your hand. Do you know if you're a part of Gen Z? It's, it's our, what, what was the, anybody know the year that Gen Z starts? What's that? 95? All right. So we have a significant amount of Gen Z kids in here. They, they didn't even include that, but here's their finding. Though Gen Z teens were not included in this study, their thoroughly post-Christian posture will likely amplify this stance towards evangelism. So the question is, why? Why do nearly half of millennials who profess Christ believe that it is wrong to share Christ? Why? And this is what they found. Society today casts a negative light on proselytization that many older Christians do not fully appreciate. So if you're older and you're of an older generation and you're sitting in here today and you're wondering what in the world happened, um, first of all, you're in good company, but the right response, hear me out, the right response is not to judge, okay? That's not what the, the Lord is asking from you. The, the right response is to pray and to teach and to engage and to walk out your faith in obedience, okay? All right, so you're not to point down your nose at, at people my age and younger and say, you fools, or what, where have you gone wrong? You're to pray. All right, society today also casts a negative light on the proselytization that many older Christians do not fully appreciate. As Barna found in research published in Spiritual Conversations in the Digital Age, three out of five Christian millennials believe that people today are more likely than in the past to take offense if they share their faith. So in other words, three out of five millennials believe if I share about Jesus with someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, they're going to get offended. They're going to be offended. And, and probably that's true. People often get offended when you share about what you believe and it's different than what they believe. It's very difficult in our culture to have a conversation right now with someone who disagrees with you, whether politically or spiritually or whatever. It's crazy. It's so difficult to have conversations because we're so bad at listening to one another. 
That's far higher than among boomer Christians, they found, 28%. Millennials are also um, either two or three times more likely than any other generational group, and here's the key uh, takeaway, to believe that disagreement means judgment. So why do millennials believe that it's wrong to do evangelism? Because from the time I was a baby, in this culture, I have been taught in school, in the movies I've watched, in the books I've read that have been written recently, that if I disagree with someone, I'm judging them. And we have been taught that judgment is like the worst thing that you can do. To judge someone is the worst thing that you can do in our culture. Because our culture is a culture based on post-modernity that lives by the statement, I feel Therefore, I am. So if you start to touch the feelings of someone, if you start to critique how they live, essentially what that's equated to is you'd rather them be dead and not, and not alive. Now, this is ridiculous. This is absolute absurdity. And it's bizarre and crazy and silly. You can absolutely disagree with someone and love them with all your heart. You can disagree with someone's lifestyle. You can disagree with someone's political views. You can disagree with how someone eats or dresses or how they spend their money and love them with all your heart. Jesus did it every day. Paul walked it out in his ministry every single day. I want to put this before us today as a church because God has not called us to be a people that hide, uh, hide our light under a bushel, right? God has called us to be a people that lets our light shine. Now that looks different from generation to generation. I would not suggest culturally speaking, that it would be appropriate for you to go stand on the corner with a megaphone and start telling people they're going to hell. That is not appropriate for our culture and our time. So how would God have you share your faith in a way that is appropriate for our time and our culture? It's a pretty key question for us, am I right? How would God have us share our faith and it's a w in a way that's honoring and appropriate, where we can disagree and bring the light of the gospel and still love our neighbor. This is the million-dollar question for the church. And this is what churches are fighting and wrestling over. But I believe that God has given us a way. So we return to this question that we started with. What's wrong with the world? We have a whole list of all sorts of things that are wrong with the world. Lust, greed, racism, abortion, idolatry, evil. We can all agree, I believe, with all of these things. Has anybody read G.K. Chesterton before? G.K. Chesterton uh, wrote in the early 20th century, and he was a major influence on C.S. Lewis coming to Christ. And he wrote prolifically um, many, many books. And uh, I've read a number of them, and they are 
fascinating, fascinating books. Has anyone seen the, um, the I think it's a PBS show, uh, Father Brown? Um, yeah, that, that character is a, a character based on G.K. Chesterton novels. So he, he wrote pro prolifically. He wrote fiction. He also wrote theology um, and books about Christianity. When, and he was uh, British. And when he was alive at one point, I forget the year, there was this big essay contest um, where one of the major newspapers in London uh, started this essay contest. And they asked this question, what is wrong with the world? And they invited writers uh, to present essays with their answer to this. And um, G.K. Chesterton, this famous author, submitted a two-word essay in response to this question. It was very simple. Two words, I am. This is what he turned in. <laughs> this brilliant scholar answers this essay with two words, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. He then went, wrote a book called What's Wrong with the World, which you can buy on Amazon, and I'd encourage you to read it. It's fascinating, where he unpacks this idea um, with greater depth. But basically, if we're answering with any other answer, then what's wrong with the world I am, then we've missed something. And this is what the gospel is all about. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, the, the message of Christ is about this. I stand before you, God, like Isaiah, a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips, and I cannot bear to stand before you. The gospel brings us to this place. Here's what Paul said. The Apostle Paul in Acts 13 wrote, said in his sermon, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I love this statement. And in our culture, we could fill in that last little bit, the law of Moses, with so many other things, right? We could not be freed by our iPhones. We could not be freed no matter how much money we made. We could not be freed though we colonized the world. We could not be free though we enslaved people for 200 plus years. We could not be freed though blank. We could not be freed though we made our entire existence about being comfortable. From the day we're born to the day we die, the main thing that our culture is concerned with is are you comfortable? And all of this makes us more and more enslaved. All of these things that, all of these idols that promise freedom, they never deliver. They do it first, just like alcohol. You drink that thing, you abuse it, at first it feels great, and then it takes everything from you, including your kids. But Paul says, let it be known to you, brothers, this is the good news, that through this man, Jesus Christ, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. What does that mean? Forgiveness of sins. It means freedom. It means there's a freedom. <laughs> you can actually be alive. You can actually live a life of meaning. We're not chasing your tail endlessly, not chasing a paycheck endlessly, where your life can have purpose and meaning because you stand before God freed 
Freed from everything that everything the world has offered has not delivered on. You can have all the world. Give me Jesus. Paul's good news recounts the history of God's work in Israel, including Abraham, exile, Exodus, Judges, Saul, David, and the promised eternal king, Jesus, the resurrection and the initiation of the kingdom. It is not simply a message of get saved or get out of hell. So many of us learned the gospel was this. Here's your ticket out of hell. Paul doesn't even mention hell in this sermon. That's not his concern. His concern is abundance of life. He's concerned with people being freed and living freely. It is a message. Of course, I don't want people to go to hell. So don't let that distract you. That's part of the gospel message, but it's just a small part of this abundance of life God has called us into. It is a message of enter into the kingdom through forgiveness and relationship with Jesus. The good news of Jesus' kingdom addresses all the problems of the world, starting with you and me. This is why evangelism is so uncomfortable for millennials, because we know that it's actually addressing the problem of the other person and the problem of myself. God cares for the unborn. He cares for the foreigner. He cares for the poor. He cares for the widow, the addict, the sick, the soldier, the self-righteous, the hurt, the lost. He cares for the world. But it starts with this, standing before him unclean, facing his cross, and receiving forgiveness from Jesus. So where do we start? How do we actually have inroads? If, if it's not standing on the corner with a megaphone, what, what are our inroads to culture right now? I've said this time and time again, and I'm going to keep saying it, because the number one way you share Jesus right now in our culture is you make a friend. All right? Everybody say, make a friend. We live in the loneliest culture in the world. The most isolated culture in the world. Every man and woman and child for his or herself. The gospel explodes to life when you take the time to make a friend. And not just judge the person because they're different than you. But to actually invest in them. And yes, that means they could be Muslim. And you can be their friend. In Christ, you can be their friend, okay? Or whatever other category you're most afraid of. God made that person in your image. And the greatest gift you can give to that person is Christ. And the number one way you can funnel Christ to that person is by being their friend. Invite neighbors over for dinner. I want every person in this church to do this this year. Invite your neighbor over for dinner. All right? If you don't know who your neighbor is, get to know your neighbor. I'm speaking to myself here, too. I, I, in, um, in the little cul-de-sac we lived in, it's been much harder for me to meet my neighbors than in previous places. I've, I mean, like, way harder than previous places. So I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to myself here. Provide community to your community because your community does not have community. It's just an empty phrase right now. Provide community. You build it. Don't complain about it. Make it. Don't whine because there's a lack of community. Be the community. 
learn about your neighbor's lives and families and ask about them. Ask about their kids. Ask about their jobs. Ask about these things. The love of God flows out by that. There was a, a neighbor in Drexel Hill, and their family was just, just a mess, an absolute mess. And I used to knock on their door and invite them to stuff all the time. And they'd be hiding like a beer behind their backs or, or you know, like putting out a cigarette real quick or uh, whatever because they knew I was a pastor and they were trying to like put up, put up this front. And, um, and every time I saw them, I just asked, you know, how you doing? How are your kids? Whatever. And they, they would lie. Oh, we're great. Whatever. And I knew like, like you guys are a mess. <laughs> just like me. But, but th- things can't be that good. And, and one day I saw this man uh, in the neighborhood and uh, he was getting out of his work truck and he looked at me and he just burst into tears. Just weeping in front of God and everyone else on this busy street. And he just put his head on my shoulder and wrapped his arms around me and and just wept on me and shared about what was going on in his life and and what was broken. And he he didn't want to hear me come to him and give him five spiritual laws. He didn't want to hear about me come and give him the Romans road. He didn't want to hear that I thought he was going to hell. He he wanted to know if I was going to be his friend because he didn't have any. This is the main inroad, I believe with all my heart, this is the road to sharing the gospel. The reason why I took time to do all this cultural critique and stuff today, because this passage in Acts 13 is about this, going and sharing the gospel with people, the good news of Jesus Christ. Take a minute and ponder these thoughts. Praise team, come up. Just invite the Lord to teach you, ask him, how am I going to share your good news <laughs> to my neighbors and to my friends? Go ahead and ask him. He'll answer. Father, we desperately need you. God, all the promises of this culture have fallen flat. Everything that promised us an abundant life has come up empty. All the time-saving mechanisms, technology, have just caused addictions. God, it's so hard to even know how to parent right now. Or how to interact with kids. We've, We've all created this mess. This is why we answer the question, what's wrong with the world? I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. Thank God for the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Because the answer no longer becomes I am. And the question no longer becomes what's wrong with the world. The question becomes how is God transforming the world? And how we answer that is just like John the Baptist. We point at Jesus and say behold the Lamb of God. How is God making all things new? The new heavens, the new earth, the new creation. Through the perfect Lamb of God. No one was worthy to open the seals in the, in the Revelation, the seven seals, none was found worthy to open that up that would reveal the mysteries of God and out walks the crucified Lamb of God who was found worthy to open up and reveal the mysteries and secrets of God to the earth. We thank you for your son, God. We want to be the light on the hill. We want to be ambassadors of Christ. We want to be missionaries for Jesus. We want to be apostles of his word. 
We want to be evangelists that share the good news of Jesus Christ of freedom with our neighbors. But we need your help, Lord. Help us make friends in this isolated, every person for themselves culture. Help us learn how to make friends. We invite you to teach us and do this. Jesus' disciples famously asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And that was a great request. Well, Lord, we stand before you today saying, Lord, teach us how to make friends. Teach us how to make friends, God. Teach us how to pray for people by name and how to invite people into your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.